I'd like to welcome everyone to the TipQC Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast. In today's episode, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Scheimer and discussing simulation and debriefing. If you have not listened to part one, I encourage you to do so. Hey, let's move on to debriefing because I know this is where your passion really lies. And I want to first off, just get you to summarize how to effectively debrief. I want to make sure all of our listeners today, all of our hospitals that are trying to get these programs up and going, that they handle this debriefing appropriately because this really is, I believe, one of those critical things that we as the trainers have to get correctly because it can destroy our simulation programs if we're not doing a good job with this. So teach everybody, Kim, what you've learned over the years and how we can do a better job doing this. So I think the big critical key is remember you've got to create a psychologically safe environment. And I know I keep hitting on that a lot, but it is really critically important. It's a new program. People don't know what to expect. They don't know what the consequences are. So making sure that you're consistently saying, no, we respect you as learners. We are here and keep addressing those things, over address them till they really get it through. That introduction is really key. When you go through that introduction, take your time on it. Don't speed through it. I find a lot of new debriefers will just want to do a minute on the introduction because because they feel like everybody, but nobody knows it. Spend five to 10 minutes on that funnel introduction. Really paint that picture for them. You're painting a beautiful scene revision. You're providing that vision. Paint that beautiful scene revision. Judy Ashner used to do this all the time. She was wonderful at doing this. Paint that picture for that introduction. And then you're getting their buy-in so that they'll want to do it. And then you're telling them the rules of the game in that introduction. So that introduction is really key. And then you're going to run this simulation. And then the first thing, really allow them to diffuse their emotions. Ask them every time. So how did that make you feel? And acknowledge the validity of their feelings. Because I don't know anybody who doesn't go, oh, that was stressful. Even if it is just a little positive pressure ventilation they're giving their baby, they always respond with that. You can just see them visibly relax with that. So let them do that and then address, why do we put ourselves through this process? Because this is where you're going to get their mind. Why put us through this? We feel awful. We feel nervous. We're anxious. We're in front of people. Why would I put myself through this and really address that with them and say, we're doing this so that when we're in the real life situation, we don't have nerves anymore because it's just our job. And this is where we get to practice and it's safe. Make your mistakes here on a mannequin, not on a real life patient. And so this is really about doing that for them. And then once that's out of the way, then really ask them what they did well. So this is that plus delta technique for debriefing and you're doing, what are the things that you did well? Because those are the things that will come out really quickly. It's like they're bragging about themselves. So they get to tell you what they did right. And so that actually builds the rapport and trust because the first thing you're not diving in going, Ooh, why'd you do that? You're instead going, what did you do well? And then they're like, you know what? I think we did this really well. I think you did that really well too. Why is it so important to do that so well? And delve in a little bit deeper so that they get the why of why that's so important. And then once you've gotten the the little pearls out of those, then ask them, and here's the Delta part. What would you change? What would you change? Or what would you improve next time? And see what they come out with that. And those are the things where they may actually confide in you where they weren't sure about something. I wasn't sure about this or that. And so that opens that up for you. And then once you've gone through those things, then you can go back to your key learning objective points that you want them to take away and say, okay, what did you do? Why did you do it? And how did you do it? And then if there's something that's a 
difficult technical skill like positive pressure ventilation or giving chest compressions, bring them back to the baby, to the mannequin and have them do it. So let's go back. Let's do, since positive pressure ventilation is so critically important for our babies and 99.9% will respond to that. Let's go back and I'll have you, Susie, go ahead and start doing some positive pressure ventilation. And so now you can go back and do that hands-on and say, what do you notice about this? What makes this difficult? How is this different from a real baby? How would a real baby be? And what would you do differently with a real baby? And then, so they get that hands-on and then you can give each one of them, say, does anybody else want to try doing the positive pressure ventilation on the mannequin? I'm always surprised. Like half the time, the other two learners want to do it too. And then you're just going to summarize and have them give those key takeaways so that they'll take, they'll consolidate in their head. What was the big thing I learned? Oh, increase the pressure. So speaking of learning, there's different types of learners. I'm a very auditory learner. Some people learn by doing things. Some people learn visually. Some people learn by sitting and reading a book. <laughs> Some people learn by listening to podcasts, which is why we're doing this. How do you engage all these different learners during your simulation and during your debriefing? And especially those learners that have some type of professional identity wrapped up in their success. Typically, these are you know, physicians. We don't want people to know we don't know something or don't know how to do something. So how do you take in all this information, all this knowledge, how people learn, their professional identities, and, and how do you use that in a debriefing session? Yeah, I think you've got, we're all a little bit different. And the interesting thing is that while some of us may learn better visually, we still learn by auditory too. And a lot of people I find, like my RTs, they're very hands-on. They need to get their hands on and do, and that's actually the feedback they've given to me over and over again. We're hands-on learners. We need hands-on experience. And so when you're doing these simulations, simulations, you've got the auditory, you're using your Colby, which is that how adult learner learns in that cycle where you're getting them to think about the process and come back and readdress it hands on. So you've got where we've done the active experiment, we've run the simulation, and then we've done the concrete, we've gotten our hands on, and then we're going to reflect back on it. And so then you're getting this active adult learning going on and this abstract conceptualization so that you know what you're going to do for the next time around. Some learners are quiet and they'll shrink back and they won't say much during the whole debrief. If they can help it, they won't speak at all if they can get away with it. And so you can, if you've got somebody who's real quiet like that, you can call them by name or point to them. And then what you want to do is if you get them to say something, say, I like that thought that somebody else has said, and then point to the quiet person and say, what do you, Sarah, think of what they've said? So here's this quiet person. They don't have to answer the question themselves. Somebody else already answered it, gave the right answer, and then point to the quiet learner and say, what do you think about that? So at a minimum, they're repeating it back to you, but it also gets them, loosens their tongue a little bit. And then if they give you something else, you know, that they say or step up. So I agree and restate what they said. And sometimes you have to give them a little extra credit for what they're saying. So if they said something, but it was part of the concept, just add a little extra to it. And then you want to get them excited about what they got and reinforcement so that you can address what was incorrect by asking questions to help them think it through because they're going to be tentative and they're not going to want to point it out. And always smile reassuringly. It's hard to do that with masks, but <laughs> the smile does a lot to disarm people. You also have people who are the one who's like the physician or somebody who is a joker distractor or more of a, an arrogant kind of. It's not that they're arrogant. It's just that they're a little bit more resistant 
to learning and it comes from a place, it, it may come across as arrogance, but it's not actually arrogance. I think it comes from a place of insecurity yeah, about sure. what's happening. So what you can do when you have somebody who's a joker, distractor, smiles and laughs, whispers to the friends, smirks and laughs, points things out that are going on like a bird or a tree or clothes in the person in the hall, ramp up the urgency and the simulation to catch their attention and refocus them. Oh, mom's passed out and there's a gush of blood. Baby just came out and not responding. So that tone of voice that you're using will trigger because that's what we respond to as humans. It'll trigger them to whoa, what'd you say? And pull them back in. And then you can also bring it home by saying, if this was your daughter or son, what would you want to happen? So that they have to think about it in a personalized way. Just keep at the beginning, reinforce that you treat it like a real situation. If they've said a joke and it's actually funny, then appreciate the joke. Hey, yeah, that was pretty funny. Now let's get back to the baby. And if you've got a doctor, if you were faced with this situation at 1 a.m. Saturday morning, what would you like your staff to have prepared for you? That's good. What would you like so that when you walk in the door, so would you already like to have the emergency umbilical line assembled, the normal saline, the blood drawn up, the emergency needle decompression kit for the pneumothorax? And the goal is to make it relevant to them, figure out what they should be interested in, that this applies to the real life situation for them so that you're bringing it home, putting them in that educational seat. And that should help focus them quickly. The other thing you can do, and this is an interesting thing for those who are really disengaged, just have them rate their level of enthusiasm or willingness to be part of the activity on a scale of zero to 10. So zero is none and 10 is excellent. And they're going to give you a low score. They're going to say it's like two, three, right? They're going to give you a low score. Now what I want you to do is ask them why they rated it so high. Why didn't they rate it something lower? And what that's going to give you, you'll be able to find out what was of interest to them. What did they find valuable? And then you can build on that and hopefully motivate them to participate a little more. That's good. As we're talking about engagement, we've had some of our engaged hospitals submit questions for you. So in our waning moments, as we begin to wrap this down, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And these are real life questions from our hospitals that are trying to get this up and going, some experiences that they've had already. Real quickly, how do you keep the group engaged during the event? You mentioned some things already, but any final tips you can give us? Don't do Paul, large groups. What's up? What's up? What do you think? Three, four, five. Uh, I depends upon the simulation. So if I'm running just a newborn baby who's a depressed baby, then it's just three learners because that's who'd be at the delivery room. The RT, the nurse, and one additional, it might be another nurse or it might be the physician or the NP. So keep it to the right number versus if I'm running an abruption simulation where there's a lot more involved for the baby, then I do six learners because I need that many people to run all the tests. So it's more catered to what would you actually want in the real life situation. And that's the number of learners you want. You'll get pressure from people to, oh, can't we just do 10 people in here? And well, then not everybody's getting their hands on. Nobody's running it. So avoid that pressure to do large groups and just keep it to the number of learners that it's specifically needed for that simulation. And it'll be determined by how many tasks and what you would really have or want in the real life situation. So whether it be three or six or whatever, and then relate it to the real life scenario. They're just given, and it's a mannequin, who cares? They're given the positive pressure ventilation. <laughs> so really go back and say, okay, how's this different from a baby who's in a delivery room? What's a baby like? Because my mannequin holds his mouth open all the time. Is that what a real baby does? And get them to think about, oh yeah, they're hypotonic, they're floppy, they're always closing their mouth. I feel like I have to open that mouth every three breaths and I still can't keep it open. And so 
Now, how are you going to do it in that real life situation so that they're applying it to that real situation and you're giving them tips that are actually going to help them on the real baby, those pearls. And then if the participant, if one of them is joking and sitting back and not really participating, then again, step up the urgency. So that's that tone of voice, step up the urgency, baby's heart rate is now zero. And so then there's this knee jerk response that we'll have in that communication process. And so then they may re-engage for you. Also, if this is a baby who's had an abruption, how fast, and this was your baby, how fast would you want them to get blood? How could you make sure that happens? How do we make that process happen? Do As soon as we know somebody's coming in for an abruption, do we call the blood bank and tell them to get that blood ready? Because we know it takes us 30 minutes. And so you're coming in, you're doing the C-section, they're going to set up, and maybe you actually will get that blood within five minutes of that baby's birth. Now, how do you ensure you can actually start giving it to the baby within five minutes? of birth. If you've, as the ambulance coming in, you find out there's an abruption, call the blood bank, get that blood ready, set up your UVC tray ahead of time, have the bolus ready, have the epinephrine ready, because that kind of a baby will never respond to the chest compressions and the positive pressure ventilation and the epinephrine. It needs blood. It needs oxygen to its organ tissues. And so you can design that system. And some people may say, well, then you're wasting the umbilical venous tray. However many abruptions that come in how many do you need to treat in that way? How much do you need to waste before you're actually going to use it? And it's going to make a difference between 15 minutes and three minutes. So it's like the variation of the number needed to treat for medications. I, I need to treat 11 babies to have an effect. I need to waste five UVC trays before I'm actually using it on a baby who actually needed it. But now I've got the bolus in, I've got the blood in. We had another hospital too, and said, hey, we're dealing with people coming into these trainings that we're trying to get up and going, and they're really nervous. Is there anything we can do to help decrease their anxiety? So what I would say is skills days. Everybody used to have the nursing education skills days. So have a station that's the mannequin. When I was at Deaconess, we had the the mom there. And so she would talk. And so they actually ran them through a minimal, you know, where they had a conversation and listened and did the vital signs on the mannequin as part of their skills day. So it wasn't an actual simulation. It was just here, let's get your hands on. This is a new toy we have. Let's listen to it. We're going to be using it later on. And so now in this, the crisis of a simulation moment, but instead just my education day, I'm walking by a station and I'm getting my hands on, I'm getting familiar with this mannequin and how it looks and how it seems. And so that's a great Great way to do it. And then again, when you're in that simulation and you ask, how did this make you feel? Validate, yes, this makes us nervous. And then ask them, why do we put ourselves through this? Why do we make ourselves nervous? And again, it's so we get our nerves out. We make our mistakes now on a mannequin so we don't make them on a real baby, on a real patient. And by the time we come to the real life scenario, the hope is that we're going to have very minimal nerves. I don't know that you have no nerves, but you have very minimal nerves because now it's just your job and it's so well. You're a Daytona 500 team and you're just, let's do it. Change that tire. Love it. So final question from our engaged hospitals has to do with that one person in the group. The whole group is doing well except for this one person and they made a mistake and they keep on making the mistake. How do we as a trainer deal with this one individual that's impacting the whole group? So I think that's a great question. I think you can start that plus Delta asking what they would do differently if they were given the opportunity and maybe they will bring it up so that you can safely address it. A lot of people who are 
messing up in something, they kind of know it. And I find they'll often bring it up. Okay, but I, I couldn't get the pressures right on that mask. And so they'll bring it up. So that's the first way and kind of an easy way to do it. Now, if that doesn't do it, then when you pull them back to do hands-on, like when you're giving positive pressure ventilation or having them do hands-on for the chest compression, because that's an actual technique skill you want them to do it hands-on. And as you're going through it, ask about why we do it and how we do it. Ask that from the whole group. So you're not putting that person on the spot, but you're asking from the whole group and have that person who has the weakness do the technique while you're asking the other people. So they're actively doing it. And so hopefully they'll listen, they'll hear that. And when somebody says it correctly, then turn to that person and say, hey, what do you think about what he just said about why to do this or what we're doing that's the correction for what that person did? So now they're verbally saying it back to you. Ultimately, you may have to address it straight on. Advocacy inquiry is a nice way to do this. And it allows you to identify what's their frame, the why they did it the way that they did it. And so then you can correct what's at the bottom of it. So it allows you to identify, is it just, I, I don't know how to work the mannequin? Is it I don't know how to do the physical exam, or is it I have a like a fund of knowledge, I didn't realize this is the way you should be doing it. And so you do it by asking an open-ended question. It's non-accusatory. It's aimed at getting the participants to begin reflecting on the simulation. And then you'll offer judgments on the appropriateness of the learner's actions. So observe what happened, give a brief, clear analysis of what went wrong, and then follow it immediately with an open-ended question, encouraging reflection on the underlying thought process. So an example would be, I'm running an extremely low birth weight simulation, and I really want to focus on thermoregulation. And so my team's focused on that. And what's happened is they're late starting positive pressure ventilation. And so it takes them two and a half minutes before they start any sort of respiratory support in a tiny little 24-weeker. So I want to address that and bring that. So how I'm going to do that, I'm going to say, so what were your thoughts on the infant's respiratory effort at birth? And they're going to make their response back. Baby was making efforts to breathe. And so then I'm going to say, okay, on my exam, I noticed retractions and grunting. So that's the observation. This concerns me that you may have missed her respiratory distress that could be dangerous if neglected analysis. What were your thoughts on the respiratory exam? Reflection on their thought process. And they will give you one of a couple different answers. I didn't notice that. I didn't know we were having retractions. I thought we were breathing great. I was wondering about that, but I was focused on making sure thermoregulation was taken care of. Or I saw that, but I didn't know I should do something. Well, the baby was breathing and it was consistent. Yeah, there were retractions there, but I didn't think I should be giving positive pressure ventilation. So now you can address that's their frame. That's what's actually at the core of where the misunderstanding is. And so you can address and say, well, NRP recommends CPAP when there are signs of respiratory distress in order to keep those alveoli open and prevent further atelectasis, lung injury, and inflammation, and worsening respiratory distress, which could lead to apnea and worsening heart rate. And so then you can bring that back around and help. And that's an example of yeah. how you would do that advocacy inquiry. That's perfect. The way you're doing that is you're asking questions to try to get in their head try to figure out what they're thinking. And then once you as the trainer, because as trainers, we're supposed to be able to do that, get into our students' heads, then we can figure out how we're going to educate them and, and teach them what they need to know. So that's perfect. I want to thank you so much for being here today. Before I let you go, though, I've got one final question for you. We've been super thorough, but is there anything 
that I have not asked you that you feel like you need to tell our audience today? I think task saturation. I think I would speak to this just because I think people don't realize how big a problem it is for humans in that no matter how intelligent you are, if you're the guy giving positive pressure ventilation, you're focused on that task. You will not see everything else going on in the room. And so I would want people to understand that concept and understand that it's really important for every member of the team, if you see something, speak up about it. And when you're running those simulations, make sure people understand that and empower them to speak up. It's just a very real phenomenon that happens. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Oh, it and is. so just empower them all to speak up. We use the term tunnel vision for this when we were explaining this to people. To make sure you don't get into tunnel vision, we had a big picture of a bear like you took the took the tunnel away and there was a bear there ready to get you. And that's key. That I think is a great thing to close on is use simulation to prevent tunnel vision, to see the big picture, to make sure that we can continue making a difference and helping out the babies in Tennessee. Kim, again, thank you for joining us in this podcast today. Uh, we want to thank our friends at the University of Louisville for allowing you to share your expertise with us. And I thank you for taking the, your time out today to share your expertise with us too. It has been absolutely amazing. Kim, one final question for our audience. Is there any resources that you want? Want to share with their audience where they can go and get more information or do you want to share some of your personal information or resources that you've put together with their audience too? Yeah, there's a learn to debrief website. So www.learn and then the number two and then debrief. And that has a lot of good blogs on it. It has a card that you can create that has the pearls method to approaching debriefing and you can laminate it and use it in the, the debriefing room if you wanted to. And then if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer those questions. Best way to reach me is my email and it's my home email. It's Shimer2 at msn.com. Thanks. We'll put those resources in our show notes for our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all the audience that's listening to us today as well. And we'll see you next time.